Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and I'm a physical therapist assistant. Our guest today is Dr. Datis Karazian. Dr. Karazian is a Harvard Medical School trained and award-winning clinical research scientist, academic professor, and world-renowned functional medicine healthcare provider. He develops evidence-based models to treat autoimmune, neurological, and unidentified chronic diseases with non-pharmaceutical applications. His clinical models of evidence-based medicine are used by several academic institutes and thousands of healthcare providers throughout the world. Dr. Karazian is an associate clinical professor at the Loma Linda University School of Medicine. So without further ado, here is Dr. Karazian. Welcome, Dr. Karazian, to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background story? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I got into um, alternative health care and then eventually into medical research just by growing up and having family members that were sick and seeing how they were treated. And they ended up getting better when other practitioners failed with really just doing clinical nutrition, lifestyle medicine. And the people that were doing that at the time were you know, mostly chiropractors, naturopathic practitioners, and uh, not really the conventional uh, MDs. So I really had that attraction to that. And then I was into sports medicine a lot. So I went into chiropractic and then I realized I really need to learn about nutrition more. So I got a master's degree in nutrition. And then I realized I really need to understand research. So then I went back to school, got my doctor of health science. And then I realized I need to learn more about research. So I got my PhD uh, with focus on immunology and toxicology. And then I got to spend uh, six years at Harvard Medical School doing research. And then while I was there, I did a master of medical science in clinical investigation and really focusing on autoimmune disease and how diet, nutrition, and lifestyle applications may change the expression of autoimmune diseases. You are a very ambitious man. Yeah, you know, you get interested in one thing and then you get an opportunity and you go, wow, I really like to learn this. And then, you know, learning research is a whole different thing, you know, and it's, it's uh, you, you can't just be a physician or healthcare practitioner and understand research. You, you actually have to have real training in research to understand how study design works and and uh, inclusion exclusion criteria and flaws with research and uh, it, it's 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 a real thing and uh, what, what I really realize is like um, the majority of physicians healthcare practitioners do not apply current medical research they don't read the research they don't understand the research and it's even worse with alternative medicine and then we have a lot of confusion and we have uh, practitioners that are searching for education to know what to do and we have patients searching for right things to do and then you get all these weird theories and then you get overdominant pharmaceutical industry and then a patient who's got a chronic disease just stuck and not knowing what to do and and then they have all these different theories on the internet and you know there actually is a lot of good research published and, and really effective applications people can make to really manage their chronic disease and I think that's really been my focus is to try to share that with people that is well, that is quite the educational background thank all you right. The first topic of discussion is Hashimoto disease. So what is it and what are some ways people can try and treat it? So Hashimoto disease, for, for most people, they just think hypothyroid, like is your thyroid working? And everyone at some point may have known someone who's a the diagnosis of hypothyroid or someone's taking thyroid medication and maybe runs in their family. And basically it's uh, hypothyroidism is really an autoimmune disease. And most people that get diagnosed don't really know that. 
So hypothyroidism just really means your thyroid gland is not working. When your thyroid gland is not working and, you know, you can start to have slower metabolism, you can have really bad circulation, cold hand, cold feet. You can start to have brain fog. You can start to have hormonal imbalances. Um, and these hypothyroid conditions typically turn on in females more than men. Uh, strong strong uh, proponents of females that uh, age 40, 35, now it's even getting younger. And then all of a sudden, you, know, you have a person who's been healthy their whole life, and all of a sudden, everything's going the wrong way, and they're frustrated, and nothing makes sense. And they finally, you know, read online, they have a lot of symptoms. Maybe it's constipation is their initial symptom. Maybe it's just really dry hands and skin. Maybe it's fatigue, and they finally get evaluated, and they, you know, probably beg their doctor to get a thyroid test. It's not a part of conventional testing, which is a shame. And uh, they finally di they're diagnosed with hypothyroidism. What they don't know is that really what they have is Hashimoto's disease. And, and the reason they don't know that is because you would have to do a test called an antibody test to determine that called TPO and thyroglobulin. And it's just not routinely part of the insurance model. So when you get diagnosed with hypothyroid, there's no point to do it because they go, you know, 95%, 90% of people have hypothyroidism Hashimoto's. Why would we spend the extra $400 to do this antibody test? It doesn't make sense. And insurance model just to waste money for no change in treatment. So when someone gets hypothyroid diagnosis, you know, they basically are told, come back every single year. We'll see if your medication is, you know, enough for you. And what they basically don't understand is the guidelines that the endocrine society had put together for hypothyroidism was you're going to have your thyroid gland destroyed further in the next year. Your immune system is going to continue to destroy that gland. And the dosage you have now may not be enough. So let's have you come back in a year and see if that's that's enough of uh, the dosage you need to, to manage your symptoms. And, uh, you know, and for some people, they have a thyroid destroyed three months after the appointment and they're going nine months without being having mm -hmm. that replacement, the right amount of replacement. And they're gaining weight and having depression, all these symptoms. And, oh, you know, it's not time for your annual thyroid <laughs> workup. A year is just a random number someone put together just because it correlates with the annual physical exam. So the fact is that many women and some men, but mostly women that, that they get diagnosed with hypothyroidism, is a female predominant disease. They, they're frustrated because they're not being managed properly. First of all, they don't know they have an autoimmune disease. Second of all, they're being told to come back once a year to make sure that thyroid hormone it, the dosage is correct for them. But you know, that's that's just a random number of people put together. So once a person develops Hashimoto's, they really have an autoimmune disease. Their immune system is attacking their body, and it's typically not just the thyroid gland. And then there's a web of dysfunctions that take place when someone gets hypothyroidism, which is really Hashimoto's disease. And um, one of them is there's a gene uniqueness. So some people get gluten sensitivity. They start to react to foods. They start to lose what's called immune tolerance. So they start to develop food sensitivities to many foods. Now, for the first time in their life, they're reacting to foods they never reacted to before. Most common ones are going to be wheat and dairy. They get really bloated. They get really swollen. They get really inflamed. They even get brain fog. They start to eat those foods. Um, they start to have chemical tolerance issues where their immune system can't tolerate chemicals as much. They start reacting to various chemicals. They may be like sensitive to certain smells and being around perfume or it varies from one person to the next. And as they continue to this web of dysfunction that takes place with Hashimoto's, um, they get brain inflammation. These, these, uh, Hashimoto's patterns turn on inflammatory mechanisms that turn on the immune cells in the brain called microglia. So now they have brain fog and can't think and can't focus and they get depression. And these inflammatory models of depression with Hashimoto's, they don't respond to antidepressants. It's not a neurotransmitter deficiency. It's a brain inflammatory response that's involved. So then, you know, they're, they're frustrated. And then, 
their gastrointestinal tract becomes less efficient um, from the inflammatory responses. They get intestinal permeability. It's part of the vicious cycle of it. And they kind of go down this vicious cascade where now not only is their metabolism an issue, but their hair is falling out, their circulation's off, they have brain fog, they have depression, everything they're eating is causing bloating, distension. And they go back and then maybe they'll have the physician go, hey, maybe you need antidepressant. Here's an SSRI or here's Welbutrin, here's Prozac or something like that. Oh, it didn't work. Let's try another one before they know they're on a list of other medications for that. And then for every little cheap complaint they have, instead of treating autoimmunity, they're using a single drug for single symptom. So now for their bloating, they need another medication for their, you know, depress, you know, for the depression, for their, you know, um, gallbladder symptoms, they may get all these other issues. And uh, when people have Hashimoto's, there's other autoimmune diseases that start to get turned on too. So many patients with Hashimoto's start to get like pernicious anemia, B12 anemias. They get antibodies against the protein that carries B12 across their intestines. That happens about 5% of Hashimoto's people. Many people with Hashimoto's get antibodies to their actual brain, and specifically an area of the brain called the cerebellum. They start to get dizziness and vertigo and nausea. And they become the weird patient, right? They become this weird patient in the healthcare that is now frustrated and has gone from like one department head to the next department head. And they don't know what to do with them. And, and the patient's completely frustrated. And this is actually the first book I ever wrote. The first book I wrote was, why do I still have thyroid symptoms when my lab tests are normal? And I went into like, hey, the science actually shows that you actually have an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. No one's telling you that because running the antibody test to confirm it is not part of the routine healthcare system. You can easily do it yourself and see you have it. And you really need to manage this from an autoimmune perspective. And then when we walk into the medical healthcare system, there is no autoimmunologist, right? We have a cardiologist, we have a nephrologist, we have a psychiatrist, but we don't have an autoimmunologist. We have a rheumatolo rheumatologist for joint diseases, but not for these complicated autoimmune diseases. And then the endocrinologist will just say, hey, you have an endocrine disease, we'll just do what we always do. We're going to manage your hormones, but they don't really know, or know what to do with the autoimmune part of it. And unfortunately, there aren't very effective drugs for these autoimmune diseases. There's just severe immunosuppressive drugs like cortisone or what they call biologics, which shut down the immune system. And so there's a level of frustration people have when they go through this path of Hashimoto's. But diet, nutrition, lifestyle can make a huge impact on it. Well-published in many, many papers, and uh, they just don't know what to do. So they're, they're frustrated and they're confused. And it's like, you know, um, you, the gene type of Hashimoto's is very um, uh, common to have an HLA-DQG type. It's a gene type two and six, which many people with Hashimoto's have. That makes them very sensitive to gluten. So some of these people that finally learn, hey, I'm going to go adopt a gluten-free lifestyle. And maybe 30% of their symptoms go away. For some people, maybe it's greater. There's even studies published that show um, in clinical trials, they have a subset of their patients completely go into complete remission with no symptoms after doing a gluten-free diet. Um, sleep makes a huge impact on autoimmune disease in general. Sometimes just understanding how important sleep is with a person who's got Hashimoto's and they really get into a regular schedule and really focus on getting good sleep instead of being on the phone all night or being on the internet all night and not getting much sleep and trying to get up too early, um, their immune system starts to calm down. And, you know, they may start to take some things to support their gut immune system and the gut barrier, maybe some nutraceuticals or things to help them digest their food much more efficiently. And all of a sudden their gastrointestinal system is functioning better. And then these little steps as you start to add them up can, can put a person into remission where they feel a lot better, 
they're not cured. You know, this isn't like a quackery alter medicine. You know, medicine can't cure you, but these vitamins can. It's yeah. not about it's like you have an autoimmune disease expression, you have certain genotypes, you have certain susceptibilities, various lifestyle dietary factors can change how they express. So let's work on what's current and let's see if those applications work for you. Like a, another common gene uniqueness that people that have Hashimoto's disease have is they have vitamin D receptor site polymorphisms, which basically means their vitamin D receptors aren't very efficient. So they need much higher levels of vitamin D than the, other, than the average population. So they may need to get the vitamin D levels like above the 50 range on a lab test versus 25 range or something. And then vitamin D is a very powerful immune modulator. So they can start to take some vitamin D and maybe notice they have some improvements in their quality of life. Um, so that's, that's, that's where Hashimoto's comes in. And uh, um, that's been a big part of my focus because when I was looking at, uh, you know, having an interest in diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and what people with chronic disease like autoimmune disease can do, obviously I had to understand Hashimoto's because it was the most common one. And many people are out there. And the current statistics show one in 12 women in their lifespan will have autoimmune disease turned on. And um, doesn't mean they get like a full-blown rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, but they start to make antibodies against their own tissue. And the most common one, the most prevalent one in females is Hashimoto's. So is all there, that people, yeah. Is there a reason why it's more predominant in females and males? Yes. Yeah, so when you look at autoimmune diseases, there's a whole area of research where they're looking at autoimmune diseases in males and females. And most, there, there's some autoimmune diseases that are exactly equal with male and female distributions, what, like uh, type one diabetes, just as many men and just many females get the same disease. For some diseases like uh, Hashimoto's, it's for sure like uh, 90, 80, 90% female, 10, 20% male. And no one really knows. Obviously the, the biggest theory is just, you know, hormones, reproductive hormones, sex hormones may play a role, but no one's really identified the exact mechanism. Um, and it's still an area of investigation and research. They can just map out and, and, tell like which autoimmune disease have a greater preponderance for males or females and Hashimoto's is for sure the most most expressed in female autoimmune disease in the world and the most common autoimmune disease in the world so in your book where you talk about what is it called again on thyroid oh why do i still have thyroid symptoms yeah i, I know yeah. in your other book why doesn't my brain work you kind of have dietary rough guidelines uh, are those in that book as well yes and you know it's, so that's this thing too it people sometimes get frustrated there isn't an exact protocol for every person. You just have to understand the concepts, see which concepts apply to you. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I try to get the information out as much as I can out there to in books. Also on my website, Dr. K News, I have a lot of articles. I have some online programs to teach people suffering, um, you know, going through the steps of what they need to know and how to apply some of these strategies to their life, right? And that's the problem because, you know, I, I've spent over 20 something years teaching postgraduate education, healthcare professionals. What happens is, you know, there's just the ones that really understand it. They all end up with waiting list practices. No one gets to see them and they're, you know, not cheap because they, they incorporate a model of dietitian lifestyle that insurance companies don't cover. And then there's not enough of them around because not many people want to practice. It's, it's a very hard way to practice to sit down with someone and do a detailed history of their diet and their lifestyle and, what the factors are in new labs and then develop an individualized personalized medicine approach is, is uh, tough to do. So I think uh, what's happening now is just people need accurate information um, from evidence-based research and then how to apply that into their life. 
then how to find out what's unique for them. And then everyone has to go through their own experiment. Like some people that have autoimmune diseases will be very, very, very sensitive to lack of sleep. Some people with autoimmune diseases will have a severe issue, not so much with sleep, doesn't really flare up their autoimmune as much, but it could be with dietary proteins. Someone else could be very, very sensitive to chemicals. Someone else could really have their autoimmune disease flare up when they get like common cold and they have those issues. You know, so some people can have a, their autoimmune disease very, very, very much expressed when the gastrointestinal system is dysfunctioning. You know, when they have things that disrupt their gut microbiome, maybe they went on antibiotics or maybe their diet was just bad for a while and their autoimmune disease really flared up. So everyone's a little bit different. So there's not everyone that has the, even with the same autoimmune disease has the same dietary and lifestyle mechanisms that work. And this is where the, the, the whole world of personalized lifestyle medicine comes in. And this is another area of research, which is very difficult because when you look at medical research, uh, medical research is focused on this concept of developing the best evidence. And the best evidence is for sure from a uh, randomized, double-blinded, placebo-randomized clinical trial. That's, that's how you really know something is working compared to a group that is everything's the same except the intervention for a period of time, right? Mm -hmm. That's the best design. But when they do randomized clinical trials, the, the, the other goal is to have generalizability, that it's as generalizable to the whole population as much as they can. It's not individual. And autoimmune disease is all about individuality. It's not really so generalizable. Now, certain things like just shutting down the inflammatory response in autoimmune disease works when they do clinical trials with different types of medications that way. But when you have one group of autoimmune disease people that have extreme reactions to certain dietary proteins versus other different patterns and have various uniqueness to different variables that are involved it gets really hard to you could design the study it's just that when you try to look for what's called statistical significance you need such a large sample and it just doesn't become feasible and no one's funding it and this is the problem and then the other key thing is with one person that's autoimmune disease in their in their life process things can change they can all of a sudden react to different foods they can all of a sudden have sleepy an issue that's triggering their autoimmune disease that it wasn't before. You know, they can have other autoimmune, auto, other autoimmune diseases turn on. So they start with Hashimoto's. Now they have some MS, multiple sclerosis type patterns that are starting to express or make it, and they start to get irritable inflammatory bowel disease, like an IBS, Crohn's autoimmune disease against their gut. And, they, and then they may be more, more sensitive to some dietary triggers that they weren't to before, some lifestyle triggers they weren't to before. So it's, it's, it's like a dynamic, ongoing thing. It's, it's being done in research circles with what are called N1 studies, where they're looking at multivariables and doing what's called Bayesian statistics to evaluate them. But it's still, it's still a new area of research, and they're still trying to figure out how to do it. So when you have like people that aren't in research, like let's say an older generation MD that's just doing what they've always been doing. You know, I don't read anything besides randomized double controlled studies. And you're like, well, you can't, you can't answer every study design question that way. Right. And it's like, dude, you just get away from my world. You're like, don't even understand. <laughs> what but at the end of the day, people are suffering. And then these people are, can be authorities and like, ah, oh, you know, I'll turn around some lifestyles. There's no evidence for that. And it's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And then the, the public suffers. Right. All right. All right, let's get into talking about the gut-brain access. What is it? Yeah, this is a major, major area of uh, research. It's exploding. There's even journals now focused just on the gut-brain access. Right. Basically, what it is is the GI tract impacts the brain. 
And, you know, the, the problem is the whole body, maybe part of the body packs each other. Uh, but when we, you know, when you look at how the human body was taught, human physiology was taught, they started with just what they visibly could see. They could see a big liver. They could see, you know, then you have your hepatologist. They can then see a big gut, gastroenterologist, and that's a heart, and the cardiologist. And they kind of got segmented by visual gross anatomy is how different medical specialties got put together, right? Mm-hmm. In reality, like there's cytokines, messengers, prostanoids, prostaglandins, hormones, all these signal agents that impact all of these, these systems together. And if you were to train physiology now, I think if you started from signaling molecules, right, first, then you wouldn't have all the subspecialties we have the way they have. We have them, but oh well. We're yeah. All, right. Uh, generations before that changes. But the, the key thing is different systems impact each other, which is very, very clearly understood. Um, when you look at these messenger systems instead of gross anatomy organs. So there's a lot of messengers from the gut that directly impact the brain and vice versa. So the gut has bacteria, right? And these bacteria uh, collectively are called the microbiome. And the microbiome, these bacteria, they produce things like lipo, like lipo, what are called lipopolysaccharides. They actually produce hormones. They actually produce things like dopamine, serotonin, neurotransmitters. They, they produce gut peptide hormones like CCK. So these bacteria in our gut are not just bacteria for no reason. They're actually metabolically active, right? And when they look at the microbiome and they look at the gut, one of the th- uh, there's been a human microbiome project and a huge effort in studying the microbiome in the past 20 years. They haven't found like the perfect good bacteria, but what they have consistently found like, across all types of research is how diverse your gut microbiome will determine better resiliency to be healthy than unhealthy. So the more bacteria species you have, the more potential you have for these bacteria to balance you out when things go wrong. So some gut bacteria will produce dopamine. Some gut bacteria will produce an anti-inflammatory messenger. Some gut bacteria will produce a gut peptide, right? So more diverse your gut bacteria is gut diverse your microbiome is the more as your body shifts where things go wrong, they can come in and balance things out. So the, the microbiome in the gut is, is an area of tremendous uh, growth in, in the research world of understanding how it impacts your body. And, and part of it is the brain. So what they find is... There's these bacteria, these, you know, they call them postbiotics, these messengers, the bacteria produce something that's called a postbiotic, these messenger systems that then impact the brain. And they can impact mood, like uh, certain probiotics, you know, I mean, taking some probiotics yourself or at some point, certain probiotics impact mood. They're they're now in the field called psychobiotics. And the gastroenterology researchers, an entire field of researchers that are now just psychobiotic researchers. All they do is study psychobiotics. That's okay. a very interesting term. <laughs> yeah, very interesting term. And then there's there's uh, people that are studying the microbiome or, or just starting or just looking at something called lipopolysaccharide. And like gram-negative lipopolysaccharides create inflammation all throughout the body. And then there's another variations of those like lipopolysaccharide A. In animal studies, is showing it's curing autoimmune disease. Like they can cure animal models of autoimmune disease when they increased lipopolysaccharide A. It turns on what are called regular T cells and animals of MS are now like going into remission. And it's like, wow. So this is part of the uh, gut-brain access is how the gut impacts our health. But when you, you know, there's a gut-brain access, there's a gut-liver access, right? There's a gut-pulmonary access, there's a gut-joint uh, access. There's, there's all these different accesses as these systems arise. So that's the gut-brain access. And Ultimately, it's like your gut has to, in an ideal scenario, to have the most efficient gut-brain access, 
So you have a, the, as diverse of a microbiome as you can have. And then I can, I can, I can tell you about things that can help diversify the microbiome that we understand now. And then it's not like taking a probiotic. <laughs> it's, it's more complicated. Yeah. And, and then you have to have your gut have tight junctions. So there's that thing called leaky gut. You have to have intestinal problem, your tight junctions, we're going to have to be closed so undigested food can't cross. And you have to have what's called immune tolerance in the gut. So there's different types of immune cells in the gut, like that are called regulatory T cells or dendritic cells, and they have to not overreact and have to have a proportional response. And there has to be something called secretary IgA, which is an immunoglobulin that coats the gut and, and prevents for exaggerated immune response to take place. Those all have to be there to have the healthiest gut. If you have that healthiest gut, not only is it going to impact your brain function, is what this research is showing, but it's going to impact Hashimoto's disease, like we talked about, inflammation, autoimmune diseases. There's a lot of strong links now in the research to why some people get long COVID because of their microbiome dysfunctions and some of these mechanisms that put them at risk. Um, so it's, it's very fascinating. So the gut-brain axis is really just looking at the gut, but really how it impacts brain. And, and, and when the microbiome and all these things go wrong, They've been shown that it can cause depression, it's shown it can cause anxiety disorders, basically everything. It shows it can cause uh, autoimmune disease of the brain, like multiple sclerosis, um, and, and uh, those are the relationships. Now, there's also a brain-gut access, which is another whole another group of researchers and another group of journals published on that, and they found the brain actually impacts the gut. <laughs> so it can go either way? <laughs> either way. So huh. the brain... The brain has a pathway to the gut called the vagus nerve. So the, the brain has goes into brainstem. There's a branch called the vagus nerve, the wandering nerve that goes directly and innervates the gut. And this, this vagus nerve controls autonomic function of the gut. Autonomic function being things like getting blood flow to the gut, causing you to contract your gallbladder so you can release bile to digest fats, causing uh, release of digestive enzymes so you can break down your foods, um, activating <clears throat> neurologically the immune cells in the gut to kick in. So you have good immune function in the gut. So lots of studies show people get head trauma, they get disruption in their brain gut access. And even within two or three hours in animal studies, they can see their, they get leaky gut, their gut gets inflamed, their immune system in the gut disrupts. Uh, they can see relationships between neurogenic diseases, having impaired brain gut access issues. So it's like this interrelationship between the gut brain access and the brain gut access that's involved. And, you know, you have people that have like, um, a traumatic brain injury, maybe they were in a car accident, maybe lost their consciousness, or maybe they were young, they played football and were unconscious and they injured their brain and they didn't notice anything then. But five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, now they're getting the expressions of it. This is what's called a post-traumatic encephalopathy, which is the term used where the brain gets injured and the inflammation continues to grow like a forest fire. And over a period of years, enough neurons are injured and damaged from it that there's some symptoms that are expressed. And one of the symptoms people will express besides like minutes cognitive decline or depression or mood changes and all things that come with it is their gut doesn't work. <laughs> now they have this chronic constipation. Now they have these chronic DAGI issues, they have chronic bloating, and they can get some relief with changing some things in their diet, but it's really a brain gut access issue. I talk about that in my brain book. Why is my brain working? I have a whole chapter on the brain gut and gut brain access and uh, how to clinically, you know, how these things evolve, but like these things are all real in in healthcare. Like this, these are all known in the scientific literature. These aren't like made up theories. These are, you know, how the body works, physiology. But people then suffer from these dysfunctions. They walk into healthcare, and they don't know what to do. And this yeah. is not a conventional alternative. 
they walk into alternative, they're going to give them a probiotic. They otherwise conventional, they're going to give them, I don't know, stool softener or something like <laughs> that. Or, and, and this is this is the frustration. Like as an outsider looking in, I go, oh my god, people have no chance. Like literally have no chance when they so start. You, to get you offer like different programming courses on your website, right? I do, and it, and 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 it's an attempt to serve some some degree of it, but it's not like I have I don't have all the answers. I'm just trying to get some 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 reliable information in a digital format out to people that may may help to some degree. Really, what we need is greater adaptation of research into clinical practice. Like that's what needs to happen. We need to have a different way to train healthcare professionals, both conventional alternative. We have to have shifts in the insurance model, health policy. To make the biggest change, you know, so I don't, I don't have the answers with my online program, my book. Right. I'm just trying to, as an observer, go, hey, I have some information that you should know about, like maybe it can help you on your journey, you know. But um, I spend most of my time actually treating, what, uh, uh, but working with healthcare professionals as edu- as an educator. So I have an institute called the Cross Institute. We have about three thousand physician healthcare professionals who are learning evidence based healthcare. And I have like on my on the Crossing Institute website, I have a practitioner located where they can find a practitioner if looking for someone. But um, it's it's complicated, and I think when people develop chronic diseases, they definitely need a personalized, individualized approach because all these variables and factors are involved, and you have to look at them. You know, the classic model of medicine is coming to get a diagnosis, and then there's the treatment, and the treatment is a drug, right? All right. And the- and the model for alternative medicine is not really much better. You come in to get the diagnosis, and now you get a supplement. They call that green medicine, right? <laughs> sure. So it's very lean, you know, diagnosis drug, diagnosis, not drug, supplement, because supplement's safer, right? And, and, and that's what they think, and that's what they go through. But it, in reality, it's, it's it's not it's not a linear single variable. The, the, the diagnosis has multiple variables in it, and each of those variables expressed differently. So you have to look at all those variables to make the biggest change. And, and, and for some things, a single linear model is, of course, easy and it makes the most sense, like an infection, bacterial infection, antibiotic, perfect linear model. That's what you need. With chronic disease and autoimmune diseases, things like Hashimoto's diseases, things like traumatic brain injuries that are impacting the brain gut access, all these other things, it's a multivariate model. And this is where you need personal, personalized, individualized approaches. And that's what's difficult. And unfortunately, we have you know, insurance healthcare policy program where you can't have a healthcare professional spend three hours doing history on a patient. No, I I think there's a few alternative in other countries that are trying to do that, but it's not common at all in the U.S. Okay. And there's some places like the Cleveland Clinic uh, has a functional medicine center where people can get more personalized lifestyle approach approaches in there. They, they just published a great paper, I think last year, Journal, Journal American Medical Association, the online version journal, where they showed outcomes between treating non-responsive inflammatory bowel disease with a conventional approach to functional medicine approach at the Cleveland Clinic with dramatic changes in outcomes. Mm-hmm. So th- there's there's some attempts to make some of these changes. Um, I teach at Loma Linda University School of Medicine and, and uh, we have a fourth year uh, option class for medical students where they can learn individualized lifestyle medicine approaches, functional medicine approaches that many of them get very interested in. You know, and, and the thing is, is these these physicians too that are in training, like they they just want to know. They want to know, like, you know, it's not this big conspiracy. It's just it's a complex model. And to to go from the linear model we have now to a complex model is is slow and hard to do. 
And then also many practitioners, like uh, yeah, just just take a different point of view. Like I meet practitioners all the time, going, "Hey, I've been practicing medicine as a family physician for all these years. I really want to do personalized lifestyle medicine. I just don't know how I can support my family if I do that. Because how much is it? How, if I'm doing a three-hour history on a new patient, and I can maybe see two of them in a day, how right. am I? What am I going to charge them? Yeah, to then be able to go to my office, my malpractice insurance." and my staff and everything else that's involved with expenses and then have any money left over right so then you get in a situation where you have you have physicians with all the intent wanting to do all the right things they just can't make the model work it's very hard for them to make it work right all right and then they can't get insurance coverage for it and then like what do they charge for the first appointment is it five hundred dollars is it a thousand dollars yeah it has to be somewhat reasonable for the clientele yeah, and then and so now we are kind of forced with a healthcare model where money becomes an issue because, like, the healthcare professional has overheads, expenses, and staff, and all the things required to manage their case, right? Someone's got to help run the office and organize things and build appointments, and and then they have to support their own family. And now you have this area where even people with the best interests are the are having a hard time doing this. So when you find them, they're they're all they're all busy. And unfortunately, you know, people that need them sometimes can't afford them and people that can't afford them can't find them and people, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit more. We uh, talked about leaky gut a little bit. Can you get a little more in depth on it and what are causes of it? Yeah. So leaky gut was something that naturopaths had had in their training and terminology since the beginning of naturopathy, right? Back in the 1900s, they always believed you can have a leaky gut, which means your intestines have basically these like little microvilla and they open up. We're just thinking of like holes in the gut. The intestines get inflamed and things open up. And uh, that was kind of like a folklore thing that happened. And then a guy named Pisano identified the molecule that opens these things up. And then they were able to cause leaky gut in animals with the signaling molecule zonulin. Sonos also at Harvard Medical School, he's in the gastroenterology department. And since then, it's like, okay, leaky gut's real. And now they're actually developing a drug that's in a phase three clinical trial to, to stop leaky gut. Oh. And I'm pretty convinced once they have that drug finalized and pr proved, which it certainly looks like it's going to be, uh, then the whole world's going to be using the term leaky gut in conventional medicine, right? Yeah. But until until <laughs> the drug's made, no one's going to talk about leaky gut in conventional medicine because it's not real yet, right? In the scientific literature, in the gastroenterology field, immunology field, autoimmune field, there's tens of thousands of papers on, on it. They just don't call it leaky gut. They're starting to now. They just use the term intestinal permeability. Yeah. Right? I think I heard it like five years ago or so was the first time I heard leaky gut. But yeah. I think it's getting a little more mainstream now. It's starting to get a little bit mainstream, but it should be it should be like breaking breaking news. Like this is this is really important. This is linked to many chronic diseases, inflammatory diseases, brain gut access, inflammation, um, chronic diseases, cardiovascular risk, predictive models for uh, strokes, heart attacks, all types of things. Right. So uh, survivability in the hospital. Uh, these are all linked potentially to intestinal permeability. Long COVID now linked intestinal permeability as one of the variables and factors. So we all have this potential in our lifespans to have our guts um, develop permeability or think of it like as 
holes being opened up in the gut and then healing pretty, pretty quickly. And some people have leaky gut that stays on ongoing because their diet's terrible, right? Now you can, you can cause leaky gut really easily with people. And it's, you can just cause leaky gut by the standard American diet, which is <laughs> very high fat, very high in sugar, very inflammatory foods, processed yeah. foods. That, that's guaranteed. If you wanted to create a human study to cause leaky gut, put them on the standard American diet. You'd see, you'd see a lot of them have leaky gut. Um, but really what, what prevents leaky gut is uh, having microbiome diversity, like exercise, it changes your microbiome, movement, uh, fibers, like people that have to eat vegetables, different fibers. The more diverse your fibers are, the more probiotics you have, the more microbiome diversity you have, less likely to develop leaky gut. Um, the less processed food, inflammatory foods a person eats, these all things protect the gut from not developing the so-called permeability, this leaky whole, whole gut pattern. Right now, you take someone who just eats processed food, doesn't eat vegetables, um, doesn't move, is sedentary lifestyle. I mean, they're likely to have intestinal permeability. Now, a lot of people get leaky gut, but that's not necessarily what causes all the problems. So when you get leaky gut, there's a few things that happen. There's, there's um, when you look at the gut, the very top is just a lining of the gut, the gut barrier. Okay, and underneath the gut barrier down here is is a part of the immune system, the gut immune system. And underneath this gut barrier here, you have things like natural killer cells and T cells, and they're ready to respond to anything that's foreign, okay? So normally your intestines have these little tight junctions, like very narrow, that little digested food particles can go through. But if there's holes and the guts open up, then undigested food particles can just go through the gut. So normally if you eat something, it, you're going to have to have your enzymes break that down from proteins to the peptides to amino acids, and then they're small enough where the molecular weight's very, very small, so they can go through those little tiny holes in the in the gut barrier. But when you get leaky gut, these undigested proteins go through, and the immune system starts to react against them and starts to make antibodies against them and starts to react against them. And this is where people develop food sensitivities. So one of the you know most common presentations people started about leaking gut is they're like, hey, I'm starting to get bloated and distended and feel awful with, with all these new foods now that I used to, I used to be able to drink milk and now I can't drink milk. <laughs> things are right. And that's where their gut barrier opened up. There's undigested food particles. We still start to react to get them. You do a blood test. You'll see antibodies against these food proteins. I mean, stem has definitely developed not an allergy, but a food sensitivity, right? They're not going right. to have anaphylaxis from it and can't breathe, but they get inflamed from it. So that's the difference between allergy and food sensitivity. So they develop food sensitivities. And in a clinical model, we measure food sensitivities with what's called an IgG antibody, which is different than an allergy, which is IgE, right? So food, so intestinal permeability and leaky gut develops food sensitivity, okay? And these food sensitivities then get more progressive and they're inflamed. They eat something that they normally eat all the time, like milk in their coffee or whatever it may be, if it's dairy or something you react to. And all of a sudden their body's full inflamed. Now these immune systems in the gut create inflammation. These inflammatory mediators get into what's called the mesenteric plexus in the gut. And then they spread all throughout the lymph nodes in the body. Now there's inflammation throughout the entire body. Now they have pain in their joints, that pain in their limbs, their back injuries now have turned up. Their brain injury they had years ago, I don't know, playing volleyball or football or something is now reactivated. These inflammatory cells are turned on now. They have their neurological symptoms again. They can't focus, they can't think. Well, for some people, their Hashimoto's turns on. They're more of their immune system starts to attack their thyroid gland. So that's the model of leaky gut, these intestinal permeability patterns where these holes opens up, things that get through, the immune system reacts against them, this inflammatory response becomes systemic. And that triggers on these, adds, adds fuel to the fire wherever the fire is. 
So that's leaky gut. And you can test for it. You can measure things called, like called zonulin to see if you have it. You can check things like zonulin antibodies. And the worst, the worst part of it is something called endotoxemia, which is where leaky gut gets really, really bad. So uh, let me explain that to you. This is important. When you have, when you look at the gut barrier, um, you know, you, some people may have heard the word dysbiosis. Yeah. Dysbiosis bacteria, dys being dysfunctional. So dysbiosis means you have more bad bacteria than good bacteria, right? So if you eat, if you eat unhealthy for your gut, meaning you don't have enough fiber, you don't have enough plant foods and so forth, right? And you have a lot of processed saturated fats and all these things, um, you can then develop dysbiosis, right? So sodas and fast food all the time and no real vegetables is going to put someone's bacterial populations to have what are called more unhealthy bacterial populations. And these unhealthy bacteria populations basically, remember we, we talked about back, pro, back bacteria in the gut releasing molecules like signaling agents like serotonin, dopamine, or GABA. Well, they, they release inflammatory chemicals. That's why they're bad. Okay. So these this, this, this change in dysbiosis where you have more unhealthy bacteria, unhealthy being they create more inflammatory messengers that cause inflammation out the body, they're in higher proportions. Now, if someone has leaky gut, those signaling molecules get through and they get into the bloodstream. Because as soon as they get into the gut, the gut has a pathway called the mesenteric plexus, which is the pathway for it to get into the entire lymph nodes throughout the whole body. So now these signaling molecules that cause inflammation in the gut get into the bloodstream and it's, it's known as lipopolysaccharide, gram-negative polysaccharide, LPS. Then LPS gets into the body and then and throughout the body, we have these immune receptors called toll-like receptors. And there's one called TL4, toll-like receptor 4, and these LPS gram-native bacteria bind to them. And so they bind to them, they cause inflammation. So there's papers showing that um, people that have endotoxemia, like leaky gut, with this L like you can measure it too. You measure blood LPS, you shouldn't have this bacteria in the blood. Okay. If you do, it's called endotoxemia. So you should measure that, and that's high in the blood. That's been linked to cardiovascular disease because it destroys the blood vessels it's been linked to major depressive disorder where they don't they can't get out of depression they, they uh um won't respond to any of the antidepressants uh, it's been linked to triggering autoimmune diseases throughout the body it's been linked to chronic pain fibromyalgia all these various things so this is why like years ago like someone would go see naturopath they go i'm really really sick they're like we're gonna get you off all bad food we're gonna put you on a fast we're gonna give you some things to support your microbiome and gut and these people did this and all these anecdotal stories like, oh my God, they reversed my inflammatory condition. The first time in life, I felt better. And back in the 1900s, nature crafts were doing this all the time with like, that's obvious. And, but now I think medicines, oh, oh with science has definitely caught up, but medicine is now trying to work on a uh, blocker. It's not going to, and that's only going to work on selected types of leaky gut, not to get too detailed, but um, it's still going to be very beneficial to many chronic diseases when it comes out how common is leaky gut like do you have a like, one in four people or something like some stat or no it's so here's the thing um there, there haven't been studies where they looked at a healthy population and they go okay this percentage of people so it, it would just be a guess yeah okay? and then when you talk to practitioners they're not seeing regular parts of the population they're seeing people have symptoms right so right so they're not feeling well so they're going to see them but i'm gonna guess I'm going to guess. How, I guess how much, how many people do you see for leaky gut? I guess it'd probably be a better question. Well, I work with autoimmune disease patients a lot. So 
it's 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 the majority of them but it's not all of them not all of them not all of them have it all right and um i would say yeah i mean you can easily guess one out of four one out of five now if you have symptoms of bloating distension with more and more foods if you eat foods and you feel inflamed if your body hurts all the time and when you take a break from certain foods that's a clue you may have leaky gut if you've ever gone on fast and you feel a lot better and your body doesn't hurt, you know, it doesn't flame as much. That's a big clue. You might have leaky gut because the main trigger to leaky gut is going to be dietary proteins. Okay. So something's what's going to trigger leaky gut is there's holes in the gut. Food proteins that aren't digested are going to get through and they're going to trigger the immune response to cause inflammation. So when you see significant reactions to foods, whether foods cause massive brain fog or cause massive bloating or cause massive distension or cause massive joint pain, that's a strong indication you have leaky gut. Because normally food proteins shouldn't be such an immune trigger, right? Right. Does also, it, yeah. I know it's a little different because FODMAP is based off fermentable carbohydrates, but does FODMAP relate, like foods relate to leaky gut? No, FODMAP's a different mechanism. There's a, there's another condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And what right. happens in this condition is um, bacteria, like, you know, we have we have these bacteria in our large intestine, the microbiome, and we have some bacteria in the small intestine. What separates the small intestine and large intestine is the valve called the ileocecal valve. And what, what, what happens with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is bacteria from the large intestine moves into the small intestine through this valve abnormally. Oh, okay. And now these bacterial species or in the small intestine that shouldn't be there. And these bacteria immediately respond to fermented foods and sugars. So people that have FODMAP, as soon as they eat any kind of sugars or fibers, they get severe distension and bloating because they have bacteria that feeds off them in their small intestine that shouldn't be there. Right. So it's still, okay. There's still bloating and distension of the stomach, but yeah. the different mechanisms. Yes. Okay. But many people with intestinal, many people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth have been shown to end up with uh, leaky gut too, because those uh, bacteria that are in the small intestine um, do create an inflammatory response when they're triggered by food since they're getting exposed in that early state to them. Right. So you get a combination of both. Okay. Yeah. I had, I have experience and so does Bob with a BODMAP because I had a lot of brain fog and gut distension before I cleaned my diet up a lot. Yep. A lot of the stuff you mentioned is relatable for me. Yeah, I mean, you're not alone. You know, we get older, or, or we 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 lose uh, our brain cells. We get more neurodegenerative. We lose some of our brain gut access. Our immune system starts to age. We start to lose our immune tolerance. We start to react to different things. But it's, these are things that then make us sick, and then makes us have symptoms. And then, like, yeah, at some point in your life, you may have to make some dietary change in how your body is responding to function better. At some point in your life, you may you may want to take some nutraceuticals, whether it's anti-inflammatories or something. Uh, else like maybe you want to you know take things to support blood flow and circulation because your vascular dynamics are changing or at some point you may want to do these things to, to function better right and this is where the world and field of functional medicine came in the, the world of the functional medicine is another specialty in healthcare it's one that i'm involved with and it's like okay we're not we're not disease focused we're, we're focused on function what's not functioning for you well i get bloated and stunted all the time great let's figure out why all right <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you have bacteria in your small intestine. It shouldn't be there. You have SIBO. Let's put you on this diet. You know, let's see if we can change your micro. Let's see if we can change your microbiome richness and diversity. Let's measure it. See what your bacterial populations are. Let's see if you've foods in your stool. Let's see if you need to take some enzymes. 
you know, and the goal is really just to improve a person's function. So another person may come in, they may have like fatigue and shakiness and lightheaded and irritability throughout the day. And then you find out, okay, well, what's your function? You're, you're not functioning while well, your energy levels are fluctuating. And guess what? You're hypoglycemic. You're going too long without eating and you can't have a smoothie for lunch. It's way too much simple sugars. And now you're crashing. Let's have you add some more fiber and protein. And that goes along without eating. And, you know, and then all of a sudden their function comes back. And now their depression, anxiety, and fatigue is all gone, but they didn't get a drug for depression. They get a drug for anxiety. They just fixed their blood sugar problem. Right. They're looking at the origins instead of treating symptoms. Yeah. And that's the world of functional medicine. Let's talk about what are some signs of brain inflammation and what should someone do if they have that? Biggest sign of brain inflammation is brain fog. And brain fog is a term that's used where you just can't get to your thoughts. So you can't find the words you're looking for. You can't get to the memory that you're trying to get to. And, you know, the best way people explain it is that's fogginess. It's just slowness. And really what's the mechanism behind that is there's what's called um, impaired nerve conduction velocities. So when there's inflammation in the brain, um, neurons, the, the messengers from one neuron to the next, that's called nerve conduction. It just gets slowed. So inflammation slows down nerve conduction. Okay. So now someone has an inflamed brain and their neurons are just slower. They're firing slower. So now everything's hard. Everything's difficult. They can't get to their thoughts. They can't think. They can't focus. And if it gets bad enough, you can get depression. Like most of the current research is showing, you know, severe, massive, unresponsive depression is really brain inflammation. And this brain inflammation also not only shuts down nerve conductance, it disrupts neurotransmission signaling pathways in multiple mechanisms. It changes something called plasticity potential, where different growth factors of nerves get shut down during this inflammatory state. And it really sets up the stage for neurodegeneration. So your biggest clue you have brain inflammation is you have brain fog. And you could have brain fog for various reasons. Um, you could have brain fog because you have food proteins causing it, the gut-brain access, right? <laughs> you guys know like that. Um, you could have brain fog because you have Hashimoto's and antibodies produced against the thyroid gland also have been shown to bind to the brain, the cerebellum, because cross-reactive antibodies can bring fog. So immune system flares up, you have that. You could have had a past, past head injury and you had a past brain injury that turned on these inflammatory cells in the brain called glial cells. And now you didn't sleep well for the past two days. Your immune system is dysfunctional. You're more set to inflammation. And now you have brain fog. So all these various things. And if you have brain fog all the time, or the sensation of your brain speed is just getting slower and slower, then that's a problem. And that's that's an indication for mechanisms that can lead into neurodegenerative disease at the very and also for sure depression. How long does it normally take for the brain inflammation to resolve itself? It can be resolve itself in hours. It can resolve itself, it can never resolve itself depending on what's happening. So within the brain, you have uh, cells called neurons and you have another group of cells called microglia. And these microglia are the immune cells of the brain. And actually the brain has more microglial cells than neurons. So the brain is more immune cells than brain cells, okay? And these microglial cells, they're the ones that create inflammation, but they can also turn off inflammation. And they have a pathway called M1, which turns on inflammation and a pathway called M2, which turns off inflammation. So some people, we, we all get things that cause inflammation in brain every single day. For various mechanisms, things cross our blood-brain barrier, um, 
on a regular basis. They can turn on inflammatory responses. But for immune system and our brain's healthy, these M2 pathways turn on their anti-inflammatory and you don't notice anything. But sometimes the inflammatory load is so much, like you get leaky gut, you have so much inflammation, you have dysbiosis, you have lack of microbiome diversity, and you get these bacteria that produces all these inflammatory mechanisms that get into your bloodstream and even go up directly to your vagus nerve and your brain gets inflamed. And the M2 pathway doesn't have the resiliency to turn them off. And now you have brain fog. And maybe you might have it for a day or two. And finally, the M2 pathways kick in and then they can turn it off. And maybe the trigger goes down, a combination of those two can take place. So it's devastating for some people. Some people that have these neuroinflammatory responses, they just can't function when they get into that inflammatory state. And sometimes for days and days, and sometimes right. even longer. Yeah. So I would like when I got brain fog, mine was due to like hypoglycemia, pretty much. I, yeah. My blood sugars were because I was discovering my fasting blood sugar was getting a lot more elevated. So like pretty much I just want, you know, low carb and then it fixed that. But yeah. and that's just for me. Yeah. And that and that, you know, you may have just had uh, lack of fuel for your neurons. So it may, you know, so you're not having nerve connection speeds turned on by inflammation. You just may have had not enough fuel to keep those neurons active. Okay. Yeah. So you may have just been hypoglycemic. Uh but you know uh when you when you get when you lose uh, cognitive speed, it's not always uh, brain inflammation. Sometimes it's exactly like you said, hypoglycemia, or you have drops of blood sugar levels there. Um, but it's usually lack of blood flow, lack of glucose, like blood sugar, or an inflammatory response. Those are the main ones that cause that brain fog pattern. Okay. All right, let's get on to the last topic. Uh, this one's for Bob. So when should you go gluten-free? When you react to gluten. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. How do you know if you react to gluten? You can do a test. You can do a lab test. Okay, so let me let me get into that. So gluten-free, first, it's, it's like trendy now. And, it, and just right. because people dismiss it as this new trend, it's not real. It's very, very real, uh, gluten sensitivity. So first of all, let's talk about a couple of things related to gluten. Uh there, there is a serious area of investigation in gluten in, in the world of real researchers looking at answers for chronic inflammation and celiac disease. And one of the first things that they wanted to look into is a group of researchers did is they wanted to see, is gluten-free more popular now because it's a trendy mechanism or is it have our bodies actually changed? So they, these research, this group of researchers went to Warren Air Force Base and they got blood samples from soldiers, 10,000 soldiers from 1960. They, it matched age-controlled, gender-controlled for the same population they could get as close to now. They looked antibodies to gluten back then to now, and there's no comparison. There was a 400 fourfold increase risk of gluten reactions now than before. And other, and other similar studies have, have been done like that, where they can get these other blood samples for years ago and compare them to as close as they can to the population now and see that. So, number one, it's it's not it's more popular now, so people are being tested. Something's happened, right? So then other researchers go like, "What's happened? Why is gluten issue? What's what's happening? What's different?" So there's a whole bunch of different theories. One of them is gluten is different now. So wheat proteins are different. They're different than, let's say, when you were your kid, like 20 years ago, three years ago, right? You had that bowl of Wheaties back then. Bowl of Wheaties you have now are not the same, okay? 
So one of them, one of the mechanisms is gluten proteins have changed. Uh, they change through two, two, two different mechanisms. One mechanism is that they have been hyper, wheat strains have been hybridized. So it's not GMO. It's just that they're mixing different strains of grains together so they can avoid weather, they can avoid insects. But the new strains are much more immune and reactive. Immune reactive means the proteins are changed where they can trigger inflammation faster than, than proteins. And uh, in the immune literature, immunology literature, they actually use the term native wheat to modern wheat because of the significant change in proteins. Oh. Okay. So they're saying that they can actually do protein spectroscopy, see 5% or more protein difference changes. So they use those terms. And there's researchers that have gone to like Middle East and areas of Nazareth and looked at wheat there to modern wheat, totally different protein. Protein triggers, wheat protein. I'm a wheat protein. Okay. Um, the other theory that's come up is how we process um, wheat with pesticides. And there's a concept in immunology called haptonation. That's where a chemical binds to the protein. So the chemical binds to the protein, it changes the structure of the protein. And there's some theory that pesticides, specifically glyphosate is one of the most commonly used ones, bind to the protein and change the structure, which makes it more immune reactive. And then there are researchers that have published like the rise in celiac disease with the use of glyphosates in farming practices. So, I mean, directly like linear, like over, like over, like matching each other, you put them on top of each other, superimposed on each other. Right. So there's a possibility there's some haptonation, meaning chemicals, uh, some of the new pesticides are binding to the wheat like never before, changing the protein structure, hybridization with these proteins are different. But very clearly, without any theory, there are different protein structures to modern versus native wheat. So this new modern wheat is much more inflammatory. Okay, so that's like one one difference. And because of that, you know, people that have always eaten bread twenty years ago, thirty years ago, and they get older, they think they can still eat it now. Well, it's not the same wheat. So you might react to modern wheat versus native wheat. Now, another common thing is there is much more native wheat in Europe than there is in the U.S. So common thing everyone hears about, it's very, it's very common, is like Americans go to Italy and go, hey, I had all the pasta. I didn't feel bad. I felt great. I came here, had a bowl of pasta. I felt awful. You know? And then vice versa, Europeans, they when they come to the U.S., many of them immediately go gluten-free because they feel sick when they eat the wheat here. All right. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that before. They also, Europe, they don't have organic because everything's organic. Yeah, they don't, they don't. They don't label this. stuff that way. They don't use like pesticides yeah. and things either. Well, they and even when they use pesticides, they, they don't use the severity. Like here in the US, they like soak the fields with pesticides. Yeah. Then they use the same fields over and over again. It's just they don't have the same practice of how they use pesticides, even if they do. And then many countries like Japan and and, and I know uh different European Union countries, they just ban these pesticides altogether. They're not even allowed. So that would explain more of the haptonation mechanism where the chemicals are changing the wheat structure, the pesticides in the wheat structure. So, so there is a new wheat. And then the other thing is, is we have a population of people that do have gluten sensitivity genes that are very common. So there is what are they called gene types? You know, we have different genes and there's gene types for T cells or immune response, and they're called HLA-DQ gene types. And HLA gene types two, six, one, and four um, all make you at risk for gluten reactions and about one out of four people have those gene types oh 
So when you have one out of four people with these gene type susceptibilities, and now you have a new wheat, you see an explosion of gluten sensitivity. So I think that's part of the reason why you see so much gluten sensitivity now. And why people have noticed, hey, when I get gluten-free, I feel better. My inflammation goes down. I don't feel as bad. Or my kid's ADD completely changes or whatever the scenarios may be. Just, they're all over. It's every spectrum of disease and conditions because it just causes systemic inflammation. So it's possible that you, you may want to be gluten-free, especially if you notice you react to gluten. Now, the problem with gluten is it's, 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 it's in many things. So some people go, well, I tried gluten-free diet. I didn't feel any better, any difference. And... And uh, they didn't really understand like this, the soy sauce they're using still has gluten in there. The beer they're drinking still has gluten in there. They just think it's bread. They All have right. really a gluten-free diet. So that's one reason. The other thing is the laboratory testing for gluten is also um, limited because when you look at gluten, gluten is like a protein. And this protein, think of it as a tree with different tree branches. There's alpha gliadin, there's gamma gliadin, there's deaminated gliadin. You can react to any one of these different gliadins. In, in, in the conventional gastroenterology testing world and what medical labs are conventionally doing, they're only measuring the alpha-17 more gliadin, which, which is the most popular one, but some people may have a gamma gliadin reaction and never show up positive for it. So another part of why people don't know they're gluten sensitive is they do testing, but they haven't had the whole spectrum of the proteome, the protein gluten checked. They only had one branch of it checked. So they just get, and the doctor goes, hey, we don't have gluten sensitivity, we tested it. They're like, no, you didn't test all the branches. You just test one. <laughs> right. Yeah, I would never have known that. I mean, exactly. I've heard of people getting, yeah, you know, gluten sensitivity tests and they're yeah. negative, but then, ah. This is what I'm saying. It's so frustrating because when you see, like once you know, like you know some information, like from my, from my perspective, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, people have no chance because they're going to the healthcare field, even with full-blown gluten sensitivity, and they're only getting the south of 17 more branch checked because that's the most common for celiac disease. But sometimes people don't even have celiac disease. Celiac disease is a different form, more severe form of gluten sensitivity. They have a specific HLA-DQ2, uh, HLAQ genotype of 2 and 8, which makes their T cells very, very reactive. Their immune inflammation is very, very reactive to gluten. And that's the difference between gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. It's just uh, how, how uh, what their gene type is and how they respond to gluten. If it's very, very severe, uh, that's, that's celiac disease. And that's done with a gene test. They do a gene test for that. Right. But in reality, a lot of people have a lot of people have, have reactions with gluten. And uh, the testing sometimes is flawed and sometimes they just need to go and learn how to do a complete gluten-free diet for a good 10 to two, 10 days to two weeks. And usually by the day three or four, they'll feel better if they have reactions to it and they'll and they'll go through it. Now in the world of food sensitivity testing, the gold standard is not a blood test. It's actually elimination provocation. You eliminate the food and then you provoke yourself. The problem is you have to follow a strict gluten-free diet. And you know, if you're not familiar with that, just look online. There's lots of sources, strict gluten-free diet. And then follow that and then see if your symptoms go away. And for some people, it's life-changing. You know, that's the key thing. So that's why. So should you go on a gluten-free diet is your question. And the question is, well, if you react to gluten, you should. But if you have a chronic inflammatory condition, autoimmune disease, leaky gut, um, it's very likely you have them too. Right. And if you're just curious, you just go gluten-free. And if it doesn't bother you, you just did an experiment. Exactly. But you have to do it strict for a good three to 10 days. Right. That's not that long. It's not that long. All right. So where can people find you at on your websites and where can they get your books? So my website is Dr. K News, D-R-K-N-E-W-S.com, Dr. K News, because my last name is Karazian and that's 
really order spell. <laughs> so we use Dr. K News. Uh, and then I had, do have uh, I do have free uh, content on that, uh, including a gluten in the brain book. So if there's a free online gluten brain book, if you want to check that out uh, for listening. And we have lots of podcasts and videos and information trying to educate the public. And the goal of the website is to, uh, you know, edu to educate the public and let them eventually know about the books I've written. I've written two books, one on, on the brain, one on the thyroid. And we have some online courses on the brain, thyroid, food sensitivities, food allergies to try to get information out to people. But uh, hopefully it can be a good educational source for those that are interested in, in these topics. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Okay. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure and uh, talk to you soon.